Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the fathers here, for the strength that they bring into their families, the strength that they bring into this body of believers. We thank you for the sacrifices that they make, Father, to provide for their families, the sacrifices they make, Lord, to take care of and to handle the issues in their families. And we thank you. We ask you to strengthen every father here this morning, Father. Strengthen him in the issues that he's dealing with in his family, in his life, in their, in their, maybe perhaps even in work. We ask you to give him a stronger sense, Father, as he goes into this next Father's year. Stronger sense of the calling that you have on each of our lives as fathers, as grandfathers, and a few of us even as great grandfathers. We thank you for the privilege of serving you as we serve our families. And now, Father, we turn to your word. This is you speaking to us this morning. And it has the same authority as if you were standing here or Jesus were standing here in this pulpit and talking to us. It is a more sure word of prophecy. And so, Father, may we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to grasp what you through the Spirit are saying to us this morning. Father, I ask you to open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. For you are calling us personally, individually, and you're calling us together as a church to go somewhere. May we hear the voice of your Spirit calling us, and may we see the the one that we are to follow, and may we understand the next step. And for these things we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Our signature scripture is in in Matthew uh, chapter 4 where Jesus calls his disciples. uh, And we're talking about how Jesus called his disciples. Now he understand when we hear the term disciple, it's a disciplined one. It means a disciplined follower. And it refers to uh, different groups depending on the context. In many contexts, it's the 12 disciples that he called to follow him full time. Then uh, Luke tells us there were 70 others that followed him in addition to those 12. And then there's a multitude that followed him around from time to time. And they were, and we don't obviously know who, who any of those were. But, but so it applies to all of them. But the ones we're looking at particularly, the ones that he spoke to specifically, are, are the 12. And we've looked at how he called Matthew, Mark, how he called um, uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee, uh, no, how he called Peter, Peter and, and Andrew, and how he called uh, James and John, the sons of Le- Je- going to be one of those mornings, the sons of Zebedee, and how he called uh, Ma- uh, <laughs> Matthew, who was Levi. And he did it with these simple words in each case, follow me follow me. And there was something powerful enough about those words and the person that spoke those words that they left everything and immediately followed him. And this applies to us because this is what he's calling all of us to do. So it it, it helps us to look at what he told them. We're going to see there are several stages to his call. We're looking right now at the initial stage where all he says is, follow me. Doesn't give them any reasons, doesn't give them any plan, doesn't tell them what they're going to get out of it, doesn't tell them anything else but the simple call, you personally, follow me personally. We saw in the beginning how absolutely critical it is to understand that because without that we want to know where we're going, why we're going, when we're going to get there. We want to know all the details and he won't answer that. He just wants to know, will you respond to my invitation to follow 
me. Because if you'll do that and trust me, I'll get you to where you need to go. That's true for us individually, but it's also true for us together as a church. Many churches are off trying to do all kinds of programs and build a big church and doing great things. And in some cases, they're working wonderfully in the sense that they're building big churches. But the question is, when we stand before God and give an account, are we going to have done what He called us to do or have we going to have done what we thought was best or made us feel good, especially as pastors? Well, Pat, Jesus, I built a church of 10,000 people. But did you do what I called you? to do. So we're going back to the simplicity of this call for us personally and for us together as a church. So we've looked at, we're looking at, well, who is this one that's called us? And we look first of all that he called us to follow him. And that's kind of what I've been talking about in the last minute or so. Follow just means you go where he goes. And if we go where he goes, he'll get us where he wants to get us if we just follow him. We don't need to understand anything else but follow him. And we're going to learn what that means as we go forward and how we apply that to our own personal lives. But last week we began to look at who is this that's called us, because he didn't just say, follow, he said, follow me. Why would, we have to, why would we want to follow him? Why did they leave everything to follow him? What was there about him? And we saw last week, it's because of who he is. He's Lord. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the one they've been looking for. But the one that's the Christ, the Messiah, is the Son of God. He was the Son of God standing before them in human flesh. And because of that, there was an authority to who he was. There was an authority to the words that he spoke. There are a number of accounts where Jesus did things or he said things, and it says the crowd marveled at the authority with which he said them. Of course he had the authority. He's the Son of God. All things were created by him, for him, and through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. His authority comes because of who he is. So the one with that authority is the one that said, come, follow me. It's not just an invitation, it's a call. It's a call. There's an authority behind it. And there are only two responses. Yes, I'll come, or no, I won't. And we'll see that as we go forward. So we're going to look today at another side of this. Uh, last week we ended uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, those challenging verses where Jesus said, on that day, because there is a day coming, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do great things in your name? And I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Why? Because in the beginning he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the will of my Father? So lordship is tied to being obedient to do the will of the Father. And this is where Jesus' authority came because he did, only did what the Father wanted done. And those were difficult, challenging statements to end with. And as I was praying about it, I realized there's another side to this. is looking at who it is that's called us and the authority of this one that's calling us to follow him. This concept of lordship can conjure up for us kind of a scary image that can cause us to pull away from him. So go with me to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, verses uh, 1 through 19, are basically the Ten Commandments. Not basically, it is the Ten Commandments. And God starts out, as we read last time, telling them, reminding them of who he is that's giving these commandments. That word commandment is something we need to meditate on. It just struck me this morning. Sometimes I'll get up in the morning and a particular verse 
will just hit me, and I'll just meditate on that verse. And the one that hit me today was out of John 14, where Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And that word commandment just rang in me. When that really hits you what it is, there's only two choices. It's not, I don't feel like it. It's not, I don't want to. It's not, do you know what this person was like? It's a commandment. And there are only two responses to a commandment, obey it or disobey it. Jesus doesn't say, love them because you like them. He doesn't say, love them because they're lovable. He doesn't say, love them because they've been good to you. He just says, you love them because I've commanded you to love them. So God has given them these ten commandments. And the authority with which He gave them to, He told them in verse 1 and 2. Now He's done this. They've seen Him... God came down on Mount Sinai. Now, I, he doesn't, when God comes down in a form, understand this, this isn't all of what God looks like. God appears, appeared in the Old Testament in different forms based on what He wanted to get across to them. So He wanted to get across to them His power, His majesty, His authority, so that they would know to obey Him. And so He comes down in the, the awesomeness of His power. Of li- and so on the top of Mount Sinai, there's lightning and then thunders and the mountain shook. If you remember the old movie, The Ten Commandments, there's a little touch of what it must have been, been like. And so this is the, these verses we're going to look at is, is their response. Exodus 20. Verse 20. And Moses said to the people, by the way, the people were afraid and they pulled back. Moses said to the people, Looking carefully, do not fear, because they were afraid. Because the verses before said they saw the lightning and thunder, they heard the sound of God's voice, and they wanted to run away. And what they said is, Moses, this is too much for us. You go talk to God, and you go hear what God wants to say to us. You come tell us, and then we'll go do what God tells us to do through you. Now, this is a little side thing here, but God had told them. This is what I want you to do because if you do what I'm if you if you will listen to me then you will observe to do what I've told you to do. Their reaction was you're too scary to get near so we're going to send our representative up to talk to you. He's going to tell us what you said and then we'll do it. But they didn't. And here's why. God knew better how to discipline them than they knew how themselves. God knew that they needed to see His power and authority before they would obey Him, and they wouldn't obey Him if they just heard it through a man. So we need to learn to do things the way God says to do them, not substitute our judgment for His. Because God, I'll let you into a secret that will bless the rest of your life. God is always right. This group didn't get that. God is always right. Now look at this. Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Look at this. This is what he's trying. That His fear may go before you, so that you may not sin. So God wanted them to be afraid of Him so they wouldn't sin, but Moses starts out by saying, don't fear. What gives with that? Moses is saying, don't fear, but God's, God's done this, so He wants to teach you to fear. Is God confused here? Has Moses missed something? 
So there's two types of fear that must be operating here. Moses is telling him not to be afraid of God, which is what they were, because when you're afraid of God, you pull away from Him. Because you're afraid He's going to punish you. He's afraid He's going to be angry at you. You're afraid he's, that lightning's going to come down and strike you. But he says, what I want you, God wants you to do is He wants you to have a fear of Him, a reverence from him, for Him, so that you won't sin. So there's, fear has two different sides to it, one of which God wants us to walk in, and it's sorely lacking in the church today, and the other God doesn't want us to do. And the difference is the wrong fear drives you away from him, the right fear draws you to him. So what did Moses, because Moses, seeing the same sight, goes up the mountain. He wants to get closer to the thunder and the lightning. The people at the base of the mountain don't want to get closer to the thunder and lightning. They want to get as far away as they can. What's the difference? The difference is God knew Moses' heart. God knew Moses' intention, excuse me, the other way around. Moses knew God's heart, and Moses knew God's intentions, and the people did not. Psalm 103 says that the people knew God's actions, but Moses knew God's ways. The people knew what God did and didn't do towards them, but Moses knew God's nature and God's heart. So in order to follow the one that's the Lord and the authority, we have to understand his nature, his heart, and his intentions. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. In Israel, when they were in Egypt, they had lords over them. They were called taskmasters. And these taskmasters gave them their assignment for every day. They gave them, they gave them their orders for the day, and they ruled over them. But they ruled over them with fear. But it was a fear of punishment. Those Egyptian taskmasters did not care about the Egyptians. All they cared about is what they could get out of them. The tally of bricks that they could get out of them. So the children of Israel serving under these taskmasters knew that the taskmaster didn't care about them, so they feared them in a way that caused them to be angry and to resent them. But God's not a taskmaster. Jesus that calls us to follow Him is not a taskmaster. A taskmaster... Oh, I never thought of this before. Whew! You're going to get an insight the second service doesn't get. <laughs> it's a running joke in the office. I hope it runs away, but it's... Oh, this is a... Never mind. I better get back over here. A taskmaster is somebody that serves as your master solely for the purpose of getting the task done. That's worth saying again. A taskmaster is someone that is master over you, but only for the purpose of getting tasks done out of you. It's what they can get out of you. That's the only reason they care about you. Jesus is not a taskmaster. He is our shepherd. A shepherd is a master over the sheep, but his motives are always what's best for the sheep. His motives and caring as a result for the sheep is very different than the taskmaster's motives 
and heart towards those that serve Him. And there are many people, Christians, that are serving God and in the back of their mind have the image of Him as a taskmaster. That he's gonna, we're going to have to give an account and He's going to be angry at us because all He's going to do is look at us in terms of what we did for Him or didn't do for Him. And when that's how you see God, you don't feel warm towards Him. You don't run to Him when you're in trouble. You're going to stay as far away from Him as you can. You want to get close enough so you can get to heaven, but you don't want to get too close because some of that lightning might hit you. You all here this morning? All right. Praise God. Good. Okay. This is good stuff. Let's go to Luke 15. Just a simple verse. And this verse number of years ago, I, just, I would quote this verse in the beginning of a message because it really struck me. One simple verse. It's easy to read over it. Luke 15.1 Then all the tax collectors, we've talked about what they were. They were hated people by the Jews. All the tax collectors and the sinners did what? They drew near to Him to hear Him. So these are the scum of the earth. These are people that are, that are prostitutes. These are people that are stealing money from their own people. These are people that are hatred. These are people that are the dregs of life. These are sinners. And here is God's Son in all of His holiness, in all of His purity, in all of His power, in all of His authority, walking among them. And they crowd near to sit at His feet and to hear what He has to say. Why would sinners want to draw near to a holy God? What was there about Him that didn't drive them away in fear? It drove them to Him. It drew them to Him. What was there about him? Because this man that they came to, this man that they came to sit at his feet, this is the same Lord we talked about last week. This is the one that has the only one. Remember Jesus is there with the woman, with the the, 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 the act, the very act of adultery, and they throw her down at his feet. And of course their motives were not to do what's right. They're trying to catch him. They throw her down at his feet. And they say, the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. She should be killed because she's committing adultery, fornication, whichever it was in this case. And Jesus, you know, gets down and draws on the sand or whatever it is and doesn't tell us what he drew. And he stands up and he said, I agree with you. That's exactly what the law of Moses says. Now, he who is without sin, you throw the first stone. So Jesus didn't deal with whether she was guilty or not. He didn't deal with whether she deserved to be stoned. The only issue He dealt with was who has the right to carry out the punishment. And the only one standing in that group who had the right to carry out the punishment because they were holy was Jesus. By the way, that's still true today. Those of you who like to pick up rocks, we may not pick up physical rocks, we have rocks that come out of our mouth. We judge one another. We'll talk about that down the road. He was without sin. And so here's a holy Son of God standing with this woman who's guilty. And he doesn't pick up a rock. 
to kill her. He says, then I don't accuse you. Go your way, ah, but sin no more. You've been given an opportunity, now use this opportunity to walk right before God. The point is, there was something about him with all of his lordship, all of his authority of who he was, that sinners wanted to be around. Just like Moses wanted to get closer to God. In fact, standing on the mountain at one point, in the midst of this fire and thunder, Moses, instead of being afraid, says, I can't handle this. I want more. Show me your glory. Show me the essence of who you are. I want more of you. I'm not afraid of you. But Moses had an awesome respect for who this God was, but he wasn't afraid. See, the fear, the wrong fear, drives you away from him. The right fear is a reverence that draws you closer and you want more because you're getting a taste of who this holy God is. And this is a God that's not just holy. This God, this holy God, holy loves you. What was there about him that drew people to him? Well, I've already given you the secret. Jesus was a shepherd, not a taskmaster. A shepherd, whereas a taskmaster leads through fear of punishment. A shepherd leads his sheep through his relationship with them because he loves them. John chapter 10. So the one who's calling us to follow Him is Lord, the Son of God. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The taskmaster never gave his life for the slaves. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. The hireling has no relation... To the hireling, it's a job. And when the wolf comes, you're not paying me enough to fight that wolf. I'm out of here. But the shepherd loves the sheep enough more than his own life so that if some threat comes to the life of the sheep, the shepherd's willing to put his life on the line because to him, the sheep's life is more valuable to them, to him than the shepherd's own life. Now the question... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. So he's the good shepherd. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. So the one that's Lord, the one that's called those disciples, the one that calls you and me with the absolute authority of the Lord God is someone that loves you more than his own life. Someone who's willing to put his life down for you. In fact, he has put his life down for you. The one who calls us to follow him is not only Lord, as we talked about last time, 
But he loves us without any limit. John 13, verse 1. This is right before he's going to the cross. He's meeting with them for the last time in the upper room. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. The word there in end, word there end in Greek has two meanings. One meaning is the end of time. So he, he continued to love them all the way through. But the other meaning, which I believe is more powerful here, is that it means to the limit. So this is also saying that not only did Jesus love them through this whole walk with them, but he loved them to the very limit of what he had, to the point of his life. So the point here is the one that's your Lord, the one that's calling us to follow him without giving us any information of where that's going to be, going to go and what it's going to require, that one that's calling us, this Lord with the authority to call us, also loves you more than you can begin to imagine loves us to the limit. There's no limit with Him. Galatians 2.20 There's so much contained in this verse. I'm just meditating on the way over this morning. And we'll, we'll probably break this down at some point. This is the whole message, basically. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, why would somebody do that? It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God. Why would I do that? Who loved me and He gave Himself for me. So the reason Paul was willing to give his life for Christ is that Christ that he gave his life for loved him more than his own life. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. So the question is, Why can I trust this love? Because that's what Jesus is telling us to do. Follow me, not because I give you any reasons, but why can we trust Him? Because of how much He loves us. So how can we, how can we, how can we trust this love? John 15, 13, we've just basically been talking about this. There are three points here. Number one, it's not based on His best interest but it's based on what's best for me. Most of the time, we make our decisions, we make our choices, really by what's best for me. And a taskmaster carries out his orders or enforces his orders based on what's best for him because he's under a taskmaster. So it's self-based. But God never does anything based on himself. God never does anything based on what's best for Him. God only does things based on what's best for you. Because otherwise, we're going to talk about this in a minute, otherwise, it was not best for Him to sacrifice His own Son. He did it because it was best for us. Why did Jesus sacrifice His own life? Not because it was best for Him, because it was best for us. Greater love, because we're talking about how much God loves us. Greater love has no man than this. So this is the ultimate. This is the limit of how much somebody can love somebody to lay his life down 
for his friends. So the measure, and, the, and here's the challenge. You all know this stuff. You've been around. You know God loves you so much He gave His sons for you. But do you know it? Do you know it? Do you know it down in here? Because the evidence of whether you know it down in here is how, what do you do? Are you willing to just follow Him because you trust Him? Or are you still trying to, and I'm talking to me too, are we still trying to hedge our bets and figure out what's good, what am I going to do if God doesn't come through? How much is this going to cost me? Notice it's how much this is going to cost me. What if Jesus said that the night before He went to the cross? Father, how much is it? You know, this is going to cost me everything. And I'm looking at those... I, I'm going to give this up for them. But He did it willingly. Hebrews 12, He said, It did it for the joy, the joy that was set before Him. So the measure of the, of the limit of someone's love is if they lay their life down. Many mothers lay their life down for their children. They may not physically die, but they give up their... They, first of all, they give nine months of their body. Mm, I could hear some of you. <laughs> then there was the small matter of those hours of labor. Then there's everything else, the sacrifice that parents make for their children. They're laying their life down. Why? Because they love that child more than themselves. Now, there's often selfish elements in that, and we'll talk about that, because the love of God is totally unselfish. There are no motives in this for what God gets out of this. All right, so let's look at some things. So, greater love is no man than he laid down his life. I want to... Uh, uh, Romans chapter 8. One of the most powerful sections of the Bible about God's love for us. He's just finished talking about what God has done for us, that, that, that he, uh, has, His plan is to conform us to the image of His Son. So, verse 31. What shall we say to these things, to what God's done for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So easy to read that verse. Yeah, I know God's for me. I know God's for me. But look at verse 32. He did not, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also together with Him freely give us all things? We're talking about the God that's calling us to follow Him. The Lord that's calling us to follow Him is completely, totally for you like no one else, even you. He's more for you than you are. There's a quote, Matthew Henry, one of the great commentators years ago on the Bible, and there's a quote. This is all in the notes that you can get offline. This is, I've read this before, but this is, this is in, his, uh, in a, a section of his uh, commentary on this verse 31 and 32. The ground of the challenge of God being for us is in this. It sums up all our privileges. This includes that God is for us. Not only is God reconciled to us, 
not only is God not against us, but God is in covenant with us. God is so engaged for us that, listen to this carefully, all of His attributes, think about what those are. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. All of His attributes are for us. All of His promises, from Genesis 1 to Revolution at the end, a Revelation at the end, all of His promises are for us. All that He is. All that He has. Think about that. All that He does is for, for His people. He performs all things that He does for them. He is for them even when it seems He's against them. And if so, who can be against us? so as to prevail against us, so as to hinder our happiness, be it ever so great, ever so strong, ever so many, ever so mighty, ever so malicious, what can they do? While God is for us and we keep in His love, we may with a holy boldness defy all the powers of darkness. Let Satan do his worst. He's chained. Let the world do its worst. It's conquered. Principalities and powers, they've been spoiled and disarmed and triumphed over in the cross of Christ. Who then dares fight against us while God Himself is fighting for us? And this we say to these things, and this is what we draw from those verses. Yeah, go ahead. Everything God is, Everything God has, think about what that is, is for you. He's completely for you, holding nothing back. That's what that verse says, verse 32. I got healed on that verse, just meditating on that verse. If He wouldn't hold His own Son back, why would He not freely give me everything else He's got? He's emptied heaven for you and me. God is for, and this is the one, although He's Lord, He's God, He's saying, will you trust me enough to just follow me? Am I worthy of being trusted enough when I love you this much? And yet we hedge our bets, as I said. We say, well, God, I love you, I trust you, but how do you know you're trusting Him? Peter knew he trusted Him when he stepped out of the boat because Jesus said, come. You know you're trusting Him when you do what His Word says and you don't figure some other answer. You're in Romans 8. Let's go to verse 38. Paul writes these, and I've said this many times. Paul did not write this from the ivory tower of a seminary. Paul wrote this from a prison. Well, he didn't write this from a prison. But Paul wrote this from experience. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other thing. So listen to this. Neither death nor life. Isn't that the ultimate? Yeah. Well, 
Because the, the ultimate basis of fear is you're going to die. And what Paul's saying, so what? That won't separate you from God's love for you. See, the problem is we don't value what God's love for us means. Nor, nor life, nor death. Nor angels, nor principalities. So even if the devil's after you, it doesn't change God's love for you. He can't stop God's love for you. Nor things present, nor things to come. Most fear is based on what's going to happen. That whatever's, gonna, whatever's in your future can't separate you from God's love for you. Verse 9, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, by the way, that's everything, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which has been given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2. God is for us. I mean, for, that's worth meditating on. God's for me. God is for me. Uh, verse 4. Just talking about how we were dead in our sins and transgressions. But God, ah, oh boy, would that preach. But God, we were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy because of, that word in Greek means on account of or motivated by, because of his great love with which he loved us. The Amplify says, in order to satisfy. There's a craving in God's heart. In order to satisfy the great and intense love with which God loved us. God had an itch down on the inside of Him. A need down on the inside of Him that could only be satisfied by giving of Himself for you because of how much He loves you. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Why? Look at this. So that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He gave His Son's life so that He could have you with Him in heaven so that in the ages... That's not the end of it. That's the beginning. So that in the ages to come out of the exceeding richness of His mercy He might show you the great extent of His kindness towards us that He's given to us in Christ Jesus. Why can we trust this one who's telling us to leave all and follow him? Why can we trust this one? So the first point why we can trust it is his love is not based on what's best for him but on what's best for us. Second point, this love that we're talking about this morning has already been taking care of you your whole life. So it's not going to start when you decide to follow Him. He's already been taking care of you, whether you respond or not. John, 5, uh, John Psalm 139. Well, we have time to look at this. 
We'll just go through the first ten verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known my ways. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from far off. See, God's not sitting up in heaven, and when you call his name, he says, Oh, wait, 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 wait. who's that down there? Oh, wait, 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 wait. is that Denny? Wow, I haven't heard from you in a long time. I know that's not true. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm a little busy right now because I'm working with Gary's prayer over here. And I got a bunch of other, but I'll get back to you. No, 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 no. Listen to this. You know my sitting down and my rising up. Every time you sit down and stand up, God knows you. He's aware of you. He's conscious of you. He's absorbed with you. You understand my thoughts from far off. You comprehend or understand my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue, but a hold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me from behind. It means you're, you're, you've surrounded me. From behind and before, you've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. It's, it's beyond what I can grasp. It's, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? This is not afraid fleeing. This is you can't get lost. You may feel as if you're lost, but you're not lost from Him. Michael W. Smith has this great song he sings about, you know, even the light is dark. It comes from the next verse after we're going to read afterwards. You know, when when you think you're in darkness, it's still light to Him. He's so focused on you. You may, when you, you know, when you go to sleep, he doesn't go to sleep also. He doesn't have to wake up and get a cup of coffee before he can listen to your prayers. He's been watching over you all the time you're asleep. When you're not conscious of him, he's infinitely conscious of you. And he was like that before you were formed in your mother's womb. He didn't wait until you came down in an altar call and said, all right, now I'm going to pay attention to them. You wouldn't have come down to the altar call if he hasn't already working in your life. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I descend to heaven, there you're there. But if I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there too. He'll go right through the gates of hell with you. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall take hold of me. The verse they won't have up there. If, if I say, surely the darkness has fallen on me, even the night is light about you. Even when you're in the pits of despair and you can't see anything. He knows where you are. Can we trust a God that is so focused on us? And see, the problem is, because we're not focused on Him that much, see, we have this attitude that if I'm not sensing His presence, oh Lord, where is your presence this morning? Oh God, I need you. Where is your presence? He hasn't left. The issue's on our side. The radio's not turned on, but the signal's there. Or it's on another station. Hebrews 13. This is the Lord, the creator of the universe, the Lord and authority of our lives, loves us infinitely beyond what we can imagine. What did I say? Hebrews 13. Well, I described this for you. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is 
been correcting the he, Jewish believers, and he comes down to the end of the correction. And now I've, I've hung on to this at times. Where is it? Okay, verse five. No, oops, yeah. I'm sorry. Verse, I said Hebrews 13. That's the one I meant. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That does not get across what the Greek language, the original language says. Because in the Greek language, it says it three times. I will never, no, I will never, no, I will never leave you or forsake you. In English, if you say something twice, it's a double negative, and it turns it into a positive. Anybody remember that from grammar school? But in Greek, it's, not the, it's the opposite. It, 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 it triples the emphasis. So this is, I will never forsake you to the third power. I will never, no, I will never, I will never forsake you or leave you utterly cast down. For the Lord, so I may say boldly, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Matthew 6, 8. We're talking about the second point is God's already been taking care of you before you ever came to Him. Matthew 6, 8, if you have that up there. Jesus talked about prayer. And he says here, Don't you know that your heavenly Father knows what you have need of before you ask Him? When you ask Him, it's not when He found out the request or the need. He's so focused on you, He knows what you need before you ask. I was talking to my wife about this the other day. You know, when you get up in the morning and maybe you're you're reading your Bible or you're maybe listening to a worship song or doing something focused on Him and a verse will come to you or something comes to you, that's the Holy Spirit preparing you. He's giving you something because it may be that day later on you're going to need something and He already knows it ahead of time and He's providing for you what you're going to need. And, but we just go so blithely along thinking God's not involved, God's not caring and then we get into the mess. And we're, God, where were you? I was back here at breakfast trying to get you ready. It's like mother saying, no, you need to be going to be a hard day. You need to get a good breakfast. You need to get, you know, get ready, have a good night. You need to be prepared for what, I don't know what this day is going to hold. God does know what the day is going to hold. He's intimately involved with you. He's put His Spirit in you to help you, strengthen you. He's the helper. Someone called alongside of you to help you 24 hours a day. So the first thing is, Why can I trust this love? Because it's not based on what's best for him. It's always based on what's best for me. Secondly, his love has already been taking care of me, whether I realize it or not. Uh, We're not going to give a chance to go there. Hebrews 12 talks about even when he corrects us. Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 7 says that, that because he's a good father, he corrects us because he loves us. He corrects us because he loves us. He corrects us because He loves us. Now in the King James, the New King James says, He chastens us. But that word means He teaches us. He trains us because He loves us. And then He goes on to make the comparison with earthly fathers. He says, if you fathers being evil, that's He's evil compared to Him, you'll discipline your children, how much more for the Heavenly Father who loves His children will correct them. So even when He's correcting us, it's always out of love and what's best for us, never out of punishment because He's angry at us. That's the third point. Okay. God wants us to mature. John 14. Go to John 14. God wants us to mature. This is so important. 
God wants us to mature. That's good right there. God wants us to mature so that our obedience to Him, because we're talking about He's Lord, but the one that's Lord loves us. If you love me, keep my commandments. They, some other translations say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice Jesus here isn't saying, if you're afraid of my punishment, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus is trying to bring His disciples to another level of motivation of why they obey Him. It's one thing to obey Him because we're afraid of how awesome and mighty He is. It's another thing to obey Him because we love Him. Now you parents, you fathers this morning, which blesses you more? That your children do what you say because they're scared of you, of what you're going to do? Because you're this awful tyrant at home and you have to, your kids have to cringe when you walk in the door? Afraid? My father wasn't quite like that, but I was afraid of him. He had a terrible temper and he drank. And so I never knew what he said to me, where he was coming from. So I had to learn that my Heavenly Father is not like that. My Heavenly Father doesn't get mad and lose his temper at me. Would you rather have your children do what you say because they're scared of you and they hide from you and when you catch them, it's like with Molly. I'm trying to teach Molly that I'm correcting her not because I'm going to punish her but because I love her. So that if she thinks I'm going to be mad at her, she doesn't come near me, she runs away from me. Or would you rather have your children honor you and do what you say because you love them? They love you. I've had the privilege of seeing our four children grow up and hear them express their love for us because they, do, they, they want to honor us because they love us. So Jesus wants us to grow to the place, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. Yes, they're commandments. Yes, I have the authority to command you. But I want you to grow to the, in the relationship with me where you do what I say because you love me. Because he goes on to say, that's why I've kept my Father's commandments because I love Him. And here's the key scripture for all of us. Let's go to Ephesians 3. I've been living in this verses for, I don't know, seven, eight years. And we're going to pray this at the end in a minute because this was Paul's prayer. Now to do this, we've got to go back to Ephesians 2.22. So I'm getting them a little out of order from them back there because this is the reason. He's been talking about how Christ came to bring us all together into one body. Verse 22, talks, verse 21 talks about the, that we are to grow into the holy temple in the Lord. Temple's a dwelling place. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God has called us together so that when we are together, we can be together a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. 
So this is what binds us together. As I look out over this congregation, I see different colors, different ages, different, different national backgrounds. But what's in common is we all have the same spirit. The spirit of Christ is what binds us together. It's not what we have in common outwardly. It's who we have in common on the inside. That's what binds us together. And that is far more powerful, far more lasting than what binds us together on the outside. And in this, so that He can dwell in our midst. So that's for background. Let's go to th- chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, that's the reason. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason is that we would be built together, built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father. It's appropriate on Father's Day. Notice, God, Jesus... Paul describes this God of all authority as our Father. Jesus referred to Him, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. So the God in heaven is holy, is also my Father, your Father. And it's a Father who loves us beyond anything we can imagine. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What's the prayer? That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might. Now that word might is the Greek word dunamis. There's two different words for power or might that are used in the New Testament. In English they're translated power or might, but the difference in Greek is very different. One of them is exousia, which means the right or the authority. So in John chapter 1, Jesus, uh, John says that He came unto His own, and he, who, that they did not receive Him. But to as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become sons of God. That word power is exousia. What it means, He gave them the right to become sons of God. He qualified them to become children of God. That's not what this word is. This is the other Greek word, dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. This word refers to the power and the ability of God in all that He is. Not the right that He gives us, but the ability of God to perform something. Very important. That He would grant to us, according to the riches of God, to be strengthened with, this is literally saying, with the power and the might of God through His Spirit in our inner man. Why do we need that might and power of God through His Spirit in our man? Inner man? Verse 17. So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, I thought Jesus is in there. But dwell means more than being in there. It means that so that Christ might live His life, might live His will through our hearts, through our inner man. Paul's prayer is that God would strengthen those of us who are already in the kingdom of God, who have Christ by the Spirit living in us, but that's not enough. Because that's who he's writing to. These are Christians. That they be, but the Spirit of God would strengthen them with God's ability so that Christ might be able to actually live His life through us and affect the lives of other people. And that you being rooted and grounded in the power and the knowledge and the theology of God. That's not what it says. 
that be rerooted, we be rooted and grounded in what? Love. Why? Because God is love. He has power. He has all knowledge, but He is love. This is why in 1 Corinthians 13 and chapter 12 it talked about the gifts of the Spirit, what they are. It introduces them. Chapter 14 it talks about abuses and how to operate in some of the gifts of the Spirit. But chapter 13 is the heart of it because it starts out by saying you can operate in all these gifts, knowledge, tongues, powers, all these gifts, but if it's not, act, if it's not motivated by love it counts as nothing because the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit is to manifest who God is and what God is like and God is love so if it's not manifesting love it's not manifesting God and God's not in it should have got a bigger response than that being rooted so the God the Lord that's calling us to follow him his motivation for everything he does is love that that helped me to, to interpret the Bible once I realized God is love so everything God says And everything God does is motivated by love. Whether I understand how or not doesn't matter because that's who God is. Okay, it gets better. Yeah. Verse 18. So that we may be able to comprehend, understand with all the saints. This is Paul's prayer. Having been rooted, our, our relationship with him is rooted and grounded in his love for us. Our relationship with one another is rooted and grounded in His love for us and therefore our love for one another. But it's not enough. He wants us to be strengthened by His Spirit that we may understand with all of the saints the width, how far wide, the length, how far long, the depth, how deep, and the height. Go ahead. And to know the love of Christ. Paul's saying there, now that you're rooted in this love, my prayer is that the Spirit of God would strengthen you. It's going to take the power of God for you to be able to break through your selfishness, break through your pride, break through your flesh, overcome all those things that have been built into your life so that you could know by experience the love of Christ and not just know what it is, know the limitlessness of it, that He will go to the ends of the earth to reach somebody. See, the people we've been called to love are not just lovable people. Because in God's eyes, we're not so lovable either. Jesus' love goes to the ends of the earth to love people. I've told you this story before. T.L. Osborne, who was a great evangelist um, several decades or so ago, more than a decade or so ago. Um, Christopher Lamas kind of like follows in his path and so does Reinhard Bonnke and some of the others. But he was, I heard him tell this story. He was in India in a white suit on his way to this big conference and there's a limousine driving him over there. And as you know, in India has a caste system and the lowest caste are the untouchables. They're just, that's, their name is untouchable, you don't touch them, they're the dregs of society and there's nothing they can do about it. And he was going around a corner And here in, the, in, a, in a gutter, now their gutters were their sewers. I don't want to gross anybody out, but this, you need to understand this. Here in this gutter is an old gentleman, obviously an untouchable, you could tell by the, the markings on him, dying. 
And Osborne said, I was in my white suit going to this important meeting and the compassion of God just rose up in me. He said, it wasn't me, it was the compassion of God for that man and I told the driver to stop. He got out of the car and in his pure, beautiful white suit, he got down in the filth and held this untouchable man in his arms while he died. That's the compassion. God loved that man so much that he sent T.L. Osborne in his white suit and everything to lie in the gutter with him and hold him while he passed away. My wife has a ministry in a nursing home. And she goes in there, and this is where my mother is too, and she goes in there and just talks to the elderly. She gets to know them by name. And, and it's a process where you see them begin to lose their mental faculties. And there's a woman there that she went to and just began to befriend. She's a Christian lady, goes to a small church, went to a small church around here. Her husband was in the same room with her. It was so cute. You go in, there he's sitting in there, lazy boy, holding hands in their room. Well, a little over a year ago, they found he was full of cancer, and within a month or so, he was gone. And my wife was already had a relationship where they would read the Bible to her and they would share. And, 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 and over the last year, this woman's beginning to lose her ability to understand or even know who Anita is. But she still goes there and reads to her and holds her hand. And I'm, I walk in there and I'm out of my element in there. Okay? If I could preach a message to them and they could understand, okay. They used to put this program on the TV. And, and, and then they're just watching it. And then I realize, they're, they're, I don't want to go there. So... Anyway, but, but she's in her element. And she goes around and she talks to them. I've watched the, the faces on some of these people just change because she sits there and talks to them. Now these are people, that this, some of them, you know, she goes in one day and the next day they're not there. And it, but I want to show, see, God cares enough about these, these people. He cares about them that even though you may not think you're doing any good, but you're in there just holding their hand. He cares enough about them because I want to see results. I want to see. I'm focused. I want to see. You know, their life didn't get changed. They didn't go out and preach the gospel. But God cares about them where they are. The breadth and length and height and depth. God even cares about lawyers. God even cares about lawyers. He sent some people to me to reach me. There's others we have in here. God cares about those that are up and out as well as those that are down and out. Don't limit who God might care for through you. And then verse 20. Now unto him who is able. He's the one that's able to do exceedingly, listen to this verse, let it soak in. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. Wow! God's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we can ask or think. How? According to the power, that's that might, that works in us. But it has to be released. We have to be willing to be put in a situation where there's a demand put on that power, on that love, and on that compassion. Amen? Amen. This is the God who's Lord, who's called us to follow Him. Let's pray and I'll let you go.
Let's pray this prayer. Father, we bow our knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, that we would be strengthened with might, your power, through your Spirit in our inner man, so that Christ might dwell, live his life to the fullest in our hearts through faith. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to understand or comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge, that we may be filled up with all of the fullness of God. Now unto you, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Be glory in the church to Christ in all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.